Well, I think the the, the first one is is, um, is a book from uh, Rene Descartes. Uh, so the the French uh, mathematician and philosopher is called the Discourse uh, of on the Method. Uh, so basically, um, it's a, a book uh, where um, Rene Descartes uses the famous expression uh, "cogito ago sum," uh, which means basically uh, "I think, therefore I exist." Um, and uh, I think in this book, uh, Descartes tackles the the problem of skepticism. And he starts his uh, line of reasoning by uh, doubting everything. Uh, so to assess the, the world from a, a fresh uh, perspective, uh, clear of any, uh, I would say, uh, cliche or preconceived um, notions. So I think it's, um, as a startup, you need to uh, break some rules and to also, uh, uh, you need, of course, to learn from uh, large companies and uh, the way they, they work. But at the same time, you need to, um, uh, differentiate yourselves and to be able to uh, challenge what uh, uh, challenge the status quo. And I think the the method of the scientific method of Descartes is very powerful, of course, uh, for scientists, but also for entrepreneurs, because they will need at some point in time to to break some existing rules to get rid of some conventions that um, had a, a meaning uh, 50 years ago or a century ago, but the the meaning uh, has been completely lost. Today's episode is brought to you by Exige International. Exige is an executive search and recruitment training business that Fiona and myself have been working on for the last 19 years. We provide technology and innovation focused executives to the insurance and wider financial services sector with a focus on the UK and Swiss markets. If you have a search or you'd like to discuss improving your recruitment and interviewing process, please visit our website Exige International, Exige is spelt E-X-I-G-E, and tell the team William sent you. I'm also very happy to introduce our new sponsor, Crankhouse Coffee. Crankhouse Coffee is run by Dave Stanton, producing some of the UK's most exciting coffees, available for dispatch all over Europe. With a host of single origin and hard to find coffee, expertly roasted with care and attention, Crankhouse Coffee is a true gem of a business. I've been drinking this coffee for years and I am thoroughly happy to have them as a sponsor of the show. So just head over to crankhousecoffee.co.uk. That's crankhousecoffee.co.uk. And you can use the code William to receive a special discount. In today's episode, I interview Tangi Tofu, CEO and co-founder of InsurTech Descartes Underwriting. I'm really happy to bring you this conversation because Descartes are known for their innovative work on weather-based parametric modeling. And having just closed their Series A for $18.5 million, I thought it would be a perfect time to speak with Tangi. Tangi has interesting thoughts on insurance's role in combating climate change, something that's close to my heart, and also on how to use culture to not only attract talent, but how to keep them together. So there's lots of topics here which were in my wheelhouse. I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, I give you Tangi Tofu. (laughs) 
Tongi Tofu. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Thank you, William. Why do you think insurance can have a positive effect on the world? Well, I think um, practically um, insurance has two positive effects on the world. Uh, the first one is really protecting uh, populations and uh, companies against adverse events. But also uh, a big uh, positive impact of the insurance sector on the world is through the financing of the economy. Uh, typically, uh, compared to banks, um, uh, the role is even um, larger in the sense that it's, um, it finances um, the future for long-term investments. Um, so I think it's, it's something that is very positive. Um, if we come back to the first uh, positive effect, um, insurance is clearly at the forefront of the fight against climate change. Uh, so we, we cannot uh, stop climate change alone, but basically, uh, uh, insurers uh, support uh, governments and enterprises to um, uh, in mitigating the risks uh, and planning for the future. What are your thoughts on insurance being more of the the stick in the process? In, and what I mean by that is that you know you wouldn't get insured to drive a car if you had a history of driving drunk, right? But if you're a company that has a history of burning coal, of dumping plastic in the ocean, of um, cutting down prime forest, yet you're looking for your, your factories to be covered for adverse weather, flooding, should there be a premium on those organizations and should insurance be saying, look, you have to be a, you have to be demonstrating to us that you are carbon neutralizing, you are moving towards a net zero, otherwise you just can't have an insurance policy. What are your thoughts on that type of reasonable or maybe unreasonable types of um, requirements on clients? I think today it's, it's quite clear that um, insurers should support the transition um, to uh, renewable energy. And um, I mentioned that um, insurance um, has two positive effects, both uh, on the, uh, I would say, the protection side and on the financing side. So many large insurers have already stopped uh, investing in um, coal-driven uh, businesses, but um, they also have to stop insuring, I would say, uh, dirty businesses. And it's uh, more or less uh, the case for European insurers. It's starting also for U.S. insurers. So they, they are definitely changing their underwriting strategy. And I think we need to be very strict in terms of not insuring, I would say, coal factories, for instance, or companies with potential reputational risks. And in, in our case, so within the card underwriting, it's, it's definitely something that we really emphasize and in uh, many cases in some countries, so typically uh, uh, for uh, some Eastern European countries or for China, uh, we are struggling to um, grow there uh, just because we won't be able to uh, comply with our internal policies. But definitely we, we should not uh, make any concession uh, about that. Uh, I think it's uh, quite crucial to, uh, um, I would say, be uh, aligned with our values and to make sure that we will uh, also keep on attracting the right profiles in the team. Um, we have to be consistent with, uh, with basically the fact that we want to 
to do something against climate change. So uh, we can't have a, uh, I would say, a, a business speech and a, a communication speech. Both of them should be uh, well aligned, which is which is definitely, uh, I mean, very crucial. And, and it's not. Uh, I mean, I know that some companies are greenwashing uh, their their communication uh, a bit too much. Uh, in our case, we we don't want uh, that to happen. So we want to to be consistent. Well, let, let's. Let's explore there for a moment with you, okay? Because I think there's a way some really important parts. I mean, tell me about Descartes. What are you guys? What do you guys believe? You said internal policies. So let's let's explore that. I mean, do you guys have a, have you know rules on this, and and you have rules on the types of companies you work with? Please tell us about that. Mm. So basically, um, there are plenty of uh, blacklisted companies uh, we cannot work with, uh, and it's uh, usually related to. Um, uh, their uh, emissions. It's the, the criteria number one. Of course, there are plenty of other uh, criteria, but uh, CO2 emissions are definitely uh, uh, the most crucial part. Um, then uh, we may have a few exceptions. Typically, if we uh, insure uh, wind farms or if we insure, for example, uh, solar farms or um, a business that will be uh, heavily exposed to um, uh, coal, it's fine. Because actually, we are supporting them in um, in the transition to renewable energy. So uh, what we want to consider is not uh, only the company; it's also what would be uh, what, what type of assets will be insured within the company. So uh, it's uh, I know that some some other players would say uh, uh, we won't insure even wind farms or solar farms because it's a company that is blacklisted. In our case, we want to be um, pragmatic. Uh, if the company is making lots of efforts to uh, actually invest in renewable energy, uh, we we should definitely uh, help them achieve that goal, and it makes sense to uh, to be a partner. Uh, but it will be really on a case by case basis. And and how does that connect to your team? Because you talked about you know we can't have an internal message and then have a different external one. Um, do you feel? You know, as a CEO trying to attract talent in a market like insurance, <laughs> that where you have maybe actuaries who are seriously risk averse anyway, you have um, underwriters who are in huge demand, you have other talent you know, coming from other areas which are all going to be competed for. Does this does this matter? Does this matter to people when you're hiring them? These types of values you have as a business. Definitely, I think um, one of the reasons. Is that uh, we have, for example, PhDs in meteorology in the team. We are actually working on weather data or climate data on a daily basis. Uh, it creates some anxiety because we see that uh, um, climate change is not only about uh, an increase in temperature. It's uh, many, many uh, uh, bad things happening at the same time. Uh, we are breaking records uh, every week. So uh, this week, for example, uh, in Canada. Uh, there was also a, a temperature record, so it was above 20 degrees Celsius in uh, Montreal. So um, we, we see that the the, um, the, the world is in a, in a poor shape. Uh, so we cannot uh, work on such data and uh, at the same time contributing to uh, the situation. So we we it's completely uh, schizophrenic uh, to, to to do that. So uh, uh, of course uh, when we uh, recruit people, uh, having a, a strong analytical background in meteorology, that we will make sure that the company is clean and is trying to do something against climate change. Again, we won't be able to stop climate change, but at, uh, we can at least 
um, provide some solutions to uh, uh, mitigate the consequences of climate change. And so I can hear in there that it's, you know, as, as a meteorologist, you're, you're effectively seeing these new records being set each day. And these are, you know, great records. These are things which are massively concerning for, for the whole world. And so ultimately, these people are, are like the first responders, you know, you're going to see the accidents taking place, and thus you're going to want to try and stop them if you can. Um, is that something then you build into your why as a company? Are you... Are you finding that that your team are responding with they want to do more? How, how are you finding that tension, that 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 op, that connection with the purpose of the business, the purpose of the people, starting to come together and affect the direction? I think it's one of the two uh, purposes um, we have within Descartes and the writing. Uh, I think we, it's good to um, um, tackle one of the greatest challenges of mankind in the next uh, 50, uh, 100 uh, years. So I think it's, it's uh, really uh, useful to, um, to find a, a raison d'être, use the, the French word. Um, and it's a, a way to motivate people to uh, wake up uh, every day and, and go to work. So it's a, it's a no-brainer that climate change is um, a source of um, motivation for, uh, for all team members. Um, the, the second one would be related to uh, diversity. So um, um, it's something that um, is related also to the fact that we are working with multinationals in uh, many different countries. So today we are actually 22 uh, in the company, and we should uh, be somewhere around uh, 50 people uh, by the end of next year. And we already have uh, people coming from more than 10 different countries. Uh, we have uh, someone coming from uh, Togo, someone coming from uh, Tunisia, someone coming from uh, Italy, Austria, Liechtenstein. So we we um, we want to make sure that the company will be global from um, from uh, let's say the, the first year onwards, and that we have um, a, a global mindset. So we are able to work in different languages and to be able to work uh, in different countries, understand the different cultures. So it is something which is quite unusual for a startup. As a startup, you, you tend to start uh, first in your home country, and then maybe after three, four, five years, you uh, export your model to other countries. In our case, as we are working with governments and multinationals, we had to be international from day one. And uh, in terms of um, uh, the, the profiles that we recruit, uh, it's something which is uh, very crucial. And how have you found that you know, hugely diverse working team how have you found they react to values? Are they, is it ultimately a universal set of values that you can find that anybody can react to, be it, you know, about sustainability, be it about resilience, you know, humility, integrity? How have you found that even with all of these diverse people? I think um, we have some universal values. Uh, for example, uh, grit is uh, one of them because we need, of course, to... Uh, uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to be very responsive uh, as a startup. We compete against uh, very uh, uh, well-established brands. Uh, we compete against uh, uh, large uh, corporations. So we need to, uh, uh, to, to be uh, better than them uh, on everything we do to compensate for the lack of uh, brand power. Um, so, uh, and, and grit is something that you can find uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, you can find... Uh, uh, people with uh, a good fighting spirit, of course, in the U.S., in 
Latin America, in uh, Asia. So it's uh, something that could be quite universal. Um, in terms of, uh, I would say, um, interests uh, around climate change, I think it's also becoming, uh, uh, I would say, uh, a, a worldwide thesis. Um, there, there is no country not feeling uh, the impact of climate change on the economy, uh, be it agriculture, tourism, or whatever. Uh, some of them are more exposed. Typically, uh, um, uh, people in, uh, in uh, North Africa uh, can really feel the impact of droughts uh, on uh, their um, GDP. So it's, uh, it's very obvious. Uh, for some countries, they are a bit uh, uh, luckier and they can basically, um, uh, they are a bit more protected against uh, uh, natural catastrophes. But uh, I think it's, it's uh, something that everybody uh, feels concerned about. So this is uh, something that we can really use uh, as a, a way to um, uh, both motivate uh, people and integrate them into the team. I think it's actually a really important thing that you've identified values as a tool for attracting great staff, but also that you've identified values as a way of bridging cultural gaps. Because I think too often organizations forget how values can be so universal across nations, across gender, across personality types. And when businesses have a set of values that they truly live and believe in, be that around uh, resilience, integrity, humility, you know, grit, then what they actually do is they create a universal set of language that anybody anywhere in their organization and even their customers can identify with. So sort of just picking up one of the points that you mentioned earlier, why is grit specifically one of the values that you appreciate? I think we, uh, we are living in a world uh, which uh, may become um, more complex. Um, Populism is uh, growing in many countries. Um, there are, let's say, uh, um, plenty of new sources of instability uh, in the world. Uh, so you need to, um, to have a mindset that uh, uh, will give you the, the ability to bounce back, to uh, basically um, learn from your failures. Um, you need probably to be uh, much more, I would say, uh, optimistic and resilient today than, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, of course, during the World War II or World War I, the situation was much more challenging. So I, I don't want to compare our situation today with uh, uh, what our grandfathers uh, had to go through. But I still think that um, uh, compared to the 80s, um, the society is uh, probably a bit more under pressure. Uh, COVID-19 creates uh, anxiety worldwide, so uh, we need to, um, to take actions. We should not, uh, I would say, uh, give up and uh, uh, accept the current situation. We need to find solutions uh, to our problems, and uh, we, we are looking for such people, people being able to find solutions and to be able to fight back uh, despite uh, everything that may happen. That's something quite, quite um, I would say, crucial for, for the company. You know, I, I think of grit, I, I would call it resilience in my my values language, that resilience or grit is ultimately the reaction to failure, um, a, an ability to go again. And 
I personally feel that links very closely with learning. And what I what is unique, I suppose, about this space in time that you've highlighted is that change of technology, this this need to adapt as modern economies to be able to take a whole new way of working, a whole new set of mental models and adapt those to fit the new circumstances requires learning. And to learn, you're going to fail. To learn, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to objectively change the way that you see the world and you think. And that requires just a lot of fortitude, a lot of resilience, a lot of grit. Um, so, you know, in your space, specifically in Descartes, which is at the sort of the forefront of parametric solutions for um, weather-based NatCat, how much learning are you doing? Is it? Are you still uncovering? Are you still having to tackle a lot of problems that you don't know the answers for? Yes, definitely on a on a daily basis. But the reason is that um, I would say we are just at the beginning of uh, a new data revolution. So there are plenty of new data sources uh, coming from uh, satellites, coming from the Internet of Things. So there are plenty of things that uh, haven't been used before in terms of just of, of data. Uh, in addition, um, people talk a lot about um, uh, artificial intelligence. And today, it's really about machine learning and to some extent about uh, neural networks. But um, the way data are managed um, is improving on a daily basis. So there are new um, techniques uh, new ways to um, uh, to improve uh, our understanding of uh, of data. So we are definitely learning uh, every day. Um, this is something that uh, may not change for uh, uh, for for, for uh, it may be the case uh, for, for the next twenty years. So I, I don't see any uh, uh, big drop in uh, uh, new data sources or new um, uh, AI techniques or, or I mean, say quantum computing could be also a big next step uh, for uh, data science. So I'm very optimistic about all the new things we may learn in the in the next years. I'd love to explore a bit about neural networks and AI and the areas that you've just outlined as new areas of growth and opportunity. But could you just connect for the listeners, first of all, about what Descartes' day-to-day work is and then how you would use these types of technologies in your work? Cool. So if we uh, take just one example, wildfire or, or bushfire for, for Australia. So uh, no surprise, uh, there is a sharp increase in uh, wildfires worldwide, be it in uh, Chile, uh, the US. So we, 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 uh, we saw the situation in uh, California and Oregon. Uh, in Australia, but it's also the case in Sweden, in Europe. So uh, definitely it's a growing risk. Um, The way traditional insurers tend to um, uh, protect, uh, for example, timber companies against wildfires is um, not fit for purpose. So usually you have to send loss adjusters uh, on the ground. They uh, try to um, uh, assess um, uh, the burnt areas. And uh, usually they apply deductibles per wildfire. So in the case of Australia uh, or even the US, uh, there could be litigations for uh, five, 10 years because fires could merge. And then there would be a fight between lawyers 
to uh, determine how many fires uh, were actually insured. For example, you may have a 50 million deductible per fire. If you say there were five fires or 10 fires or just one, uh, the potential claim payments would be very different. In our case, what we do is we use uh, different uh, satellites. It could be uh, European satellites, so launched by the European Space Agency. We are actually incubated by the European Space Agency. It could be American satellites. It could be Chinese, Japanese satellites, uh, typically from uh, from the JAXA. Um, uh, we we um, we basically, are, uh, if you take um, uh, the European Space Agency, it would be Sentinel satellites. So it's a family of uh, satellites that were that uh, have been launched over the last uh, uh, five years, and uh, some more will be launched in the next years. Uh, such satellites are able, for example, to determine if um, uh, an area has been burnt or not. And it will be much more precise than, uh, I would say, through loss adjusters on the ground. Uh, and what we ensure in that case is not uh, the fire, it's just uh, the, the total surface. So there won't be any debate about uh, there were three fires, uh, two, five, ten, we don't care. We just look at um, uh, the, um, the plantation uh, we have uh, our own algorithms to get rid, for example, of roads, rivers, natural forests. And uh, so to be able to only ensure uh, the plantation of our clients. And then uh, after a wildfire, we know exactly how much should be given basically to our, our clients to be able to um, uh, to bounce back and, and, and to um, uh, keep on um, growing their business. So it's a completely different um, technology and approach towards insurance. So listen, how does AI affect in that? Is it sort of the, the AI or the neural network being placed above that analysis or sort of doing sort of historic analysis based on previous satellite industry? And how does that work? So we're talking about, for example, uh, plantations above uh, 10 million hectares. So it's uh, very large. And you need to be able to identify to, to, um, you need some algorithms to recognize, for example, um, roads, rivers, uh, natural forests. This is not something that you can do on your own. So you need an algorithm to be able to uh, detect, uh, what is, uh, what has to be covered and what should not be covered. And at the same time, if the tree is burnt or not. Uh, so for that, you need basically to, um, to use, um, a combination of, uh, Machine learning and neural networks to be able to, to basically, um, um, detect almost in real time if there is a, a wildfire. When I say almost in real time, it could be a couple of hours and sometimes a, a couple of days if it's a, a very complex topic. And it depends also on the, on the geography. But it's uh, through such algorithms that you will be able to, um, to offer, uh, such a product. Otherwise, you will need to go through local measurements, uh, people sent, uh, on the ground to uh, again uh, review the damage, which is not our approach. We really prefer to use data because it's more powerful in many cases. It will be more precise and uh, it will um, help us uh, process uh, swift claim uh, payments, which is uh, crucial also for, for our clients. But how does it help your customer? How does this type of approach help the people that, that need the cash at the time? 
Typically, um, we uh, we commit ourselves to uh, process the claim payment within five working days. Uh, in the corporate segment, and we are fo really focused on uh, corporate players, uh, usually it's above six to, to 12 months uh, because there will be some, uh, when there is a, a claim in the corporate segment, uh, usually the insurer will uh, try to find a way to minimize the loss uh, for them. And the insured will probably contact their lawyers uh, to make sure that they will get the most out of the insurance policy. So it's a very conflictual um, world, uh, and it takes uh, lots of time to um, to get um, a claim payment. Uh, we want to get rid of that. We want to get rid of litigations, and we want to make sure that our clients will get money very quickly after the after the the, the, the loss. Um, typically, it's the case for cyclones. So for cyclones, we're able to monitor the height of the cyclone. If it crosses a circle close to our clients, we will be able to um, basically trigger a claim payment. In some cases, due to local regulations, we will have to um, receive a, a declaration of loss from our clients. Because in, in some countries, like for example, France, you cannot force the client to be paid. So you have to request your client to uh, send you something to be able to, to process the, the payment. Well, the rationale is that uh, sometimes you have some uh, bonuses or maluses uh, that could be uh, impacted by a, a claim payment. That's why you cannot be, you cannot force your client to, to, to get a payment. But um, uh, yeah, it, it's something. I was, I was going to ask that. <laughs> I was going to wonder why you wouldn't want to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, because they, they, they fear a large um, uh, price increase afterwards. It's also uh, one of the reasons, uh, which is not a, a good one. But it's true that uh, um, uh, in uh, when you have a claim, uh, you can, as an insured, uh, if uh, after the claim payment, you can expect either your um, insurer to uh, cancel the policy or to uh, ask for a very strong price increase, which is, uh, for me, not um, a good approach. We are talking a lot about customer centricity in uh, the insurance world, but if your client suffer, suffers a loss, uh, the next step is not to, uh, to send um, a policy cancellation. Otherwise, uh, you're not doing your job properly. So you, and it means also that you are not able to assess the risk properly upfront because the, the risk is not changing from one day to another. Yeah, I find this an interesting consideration, actually, because, uh, you know, this is the opportunity with someone like Descartes, where you have a, a more granularized access to risk information that you can hopefully assess risk in a new and more effective way. And then, like you've said, you know, you, the, the, the situation comes where you've got to make a claim and then you have a then then what what next are you then in, then you're lumbered with this situation where you can't get get insurance again. But with proper analysis, you would be able to, to assess that risk in a way that makes it appealing for the customer to, to buy again and also then to have coverage. I, I wonder what you think about the idea of sort of this fractionalization, this opening up of insurance and to capacity, insurance capacity specifically to the capital markets, because it strikes me that the types of risks that we're talking about are the magnitude of potential loss is, you know, 
ginormous and the reinsurance market you know with its maybe 50 odd billion capacity just isn't capable of covering the potential future risks that society faces so what are your thoughts on fractionalizing insurance and opening it up say to the capital markets and by providing much better data so I think there are actually two questions. I will start with um, my view on the ILS, so the insurance-linked securities uh, market. I think uh, if we take a step back, uh, it was initially fueled by low interest rates. So asset managers were pouring lots of capital in the insurance market uh, because uh, definitely the interest rates were low and they were looking for um, a decrease in their beta. So basically, they were looking for decorrelation in their portfolio. And it's true, uh, there is almost no impact of a large net cat on stock markets. You may have a, a big hurricane in, in Miami, an earthquake in Japan, and you will see that the impact on uh, NASDAQ or uh, FTSE or whatever will be very limited. So that was the, the, the rationale uh, for uh, large asset managers to uh, enter into the, the insurance and the reinsurance markets. Um, uh, but I think for, 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 um, for us, it's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, as you said, uh, the, the challenge is so big. Uh, I mentioned the fact that uninsured losses were growing faster than insured losses. So we need to, to find more capacity in the world and financial markets could be part of the solutions. Uh, and if you look at um, most of the large insurers or insurers, they are all having their own ILS fund uh, to be able to provide additional capacity, typically for earthquake and cyclones. I think that uh, is um, not, I would say, um, uh, I would say it's not a, only a, uh, it's not always a competitor to um, insurers. Uh, insurers are also partnering a lot with um, alternative capital. Uh, coming back to your other question uh, on, uh, I would say, um, the, the fact that um, insurance could be uh, fractions. I don't know if you um, if you mean by that uh, the fact that mutualization is something that could be compromised in the long term by uh, new algorithms and the ability to be much more accurate in terms of pricing. Is it what you you had in mind when you? Yeah, well, I, what I meant by it is that um, you know, say you're faced with a you know you're Mr. Mr. Elon Musk, and you have a gigafactory in a in a location where, and the the potential coverage for that gigafactory runs into the hundreds of millions in terms of its you know potential impact on your business. The resulting premium is such that um, it's maybe difficult to take, or the the capacity in the market is such that it's not prepared to cover it. Fractionalizing taking individual elements of that risk and being able to offer it out in this way um, and by having these types of granular risk assessments that we've just talked about is a way to fractionalize this you know and then and make it available these types of risk as part of a non-correlated portfolio as you've mentioned I see that as a potential personally and I'm just wondering about you know you for the same but you know and and, and particularly making the types of profile of risk um, understandable, clearly articulated so that investors private investors can start to make a call and take a position on that risk 
I think uh, as long as the risk is decolated from the performance of uh, stock markets, there is a strong appetite from asset managers to uh, uh, to, to be, uh, I would say, uh, very active in, in that space. Um, you, you mentioned, for example, uh, Tesla. I think a recent example is with Google. So I think uh, Google announced, uh, I think last week or, or earlier this week, that they would actually uh, issue a cat bond. Um, Usually for, for capacities below half a billion, I would say the insurance market is, uh, uh, strong enough to, um, to, to do it. Uh, when it goes above that, it's true that cat bonds or, uh, other, uh, vehicles, uh, could be, uh, uh, could be leveraged. Um, uh, and I think it's, um, it, it's a long-term trend. So I don't see, uh, ILS funds withdraw from the, the natural catastrophe space uh, in the in the next years even if the interest rates may go up uh, in five or, or ten years i think it's uh, they are here to to stay um, and i think for for both uh, insurers uh, reinsurers and uh, the end clients it's uh, it's good news i think again it's additional capacity and um um, their mandate is also um, uh, changing a lot right now. So initially, ILS funds were really focused on three types of risks. So basically, they were focusing on earthquake in Japan, um, uh, cyclones in the Caribbean and uh, Florida, and earthquake in California. Right, right now, we, we observe more and more ILS funds trying to, for example, uh, take a share of uh, the wildfire markets. Uh, to be more involved in uh, drought risks in Africa or Eastern Europe. So we, we see that their mandate is um, not as narrow as, as before. So definitely, there is a, a growing appetite for new um, new, uh, new products. And I think it's related to um, the fact that they better, they're able to better assess the risk through new data sources and also the correlations between um, the different risks. Uh, the big challenge will be uh, pandemics, because for pandemics, there is a strong correlation with uh, stock market performance. So basically, there is no appetite for them to add some accumulation to their existing portfolio. Uh, that's why governments will be uh, forced to be uh, more involved than in other, in, in other assets. Yeah, this is an interesting point about accumulation and was covered in um, a previous um, podcast with uh, I've, I've done with others like um, Patrick Callahan and others who are trying to tackle this very problem. Um, you know, accumulation seems to be one of the Achilles heels of the idea of covering pandemic risks. Um, tell me about what's next for Descartes then, um, for those interested in your progress. What, what's, what's, what's upcoming? So we, um, we want to keep on growing very fast. And um, so we uh, have opened a hub in uh, New York recently. Um, we saw our first employee joining us uh, in, a, in a few days. Uh, we are also opening um, an office in Singapore. And uh, I think in, in a few years, we have uh, several hubs beyond Singapore and New York uh, to be able to be closer to, to our um, workers and uh, end customers. Um, I think we are uh, a great place for um, uh, mathematicians and uh, people having a, a passion for data. So I think um, uh, we uh, we managed to attract uh, high calibers and uh, 
um, the the challenge we we have uh, are huge, so uh, they can really uh, uh, enjoy, I would say, uh, working with us uh, every day because they will be uh, uh, using the latest uh, methods, the latest uh, technologies. So I think it's uh, definitely um, for, for actuaries and uh, modelers, it's, it's a great place to um, to, to to work. Um, I mentioned the fact that we really want uh, Descartes and the right thing to be um, uh, multicultural. So we uh, we don't need to speak French, for example, if you join our, our Paris office. Uh, so we have plenty of people that are, uh, so not being able to, to say anything in French, and it's fine. So um, I know that it's not the case for, uh, for, for many firms in France. So it, we have a, a big advantage because we can really recruit people just uh, being interested in, in the field, in the space, and not, uh, uh, I would say, having any, uh, any specific um, uh, language skills. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's that's um, a good summary of uh, why uh, people should uh, join us. Excellent. So I hear from that sort of there's some some key expansion going on for you into other territories. Um, what are those other geographies that you're most excited about at Descartes right now? Well, I think LATAM uh, is definitely um, uh, a geography where we are growing very fast. Um, so we, we uh, today we have only one uh, Mexican in the team. And uh, I think we will have uh, uh, more Spanish speakers uh, very soon. Asia is definitely where um, innovation is happening. So, of course, you, you have uh, lots of innovation in the U.S., but I would say that China is by far the most innovative country in the world for uh, for insurance. Um, I would say most of the, the the most innovative companies actually in, in China, again in the insurance uh, sector. Um, so we need to to be more active in China at some point in time. Uh, it's, we are already uh, quite active in uh, in Taiwan on the on the region side. So we we just need to. Uh, to keep on going um, in that region. Um, Australia is also um, uh, a very uh, promising market. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, it's also a country uh, very vulnerable to climate change, um, both due to um, an increase in temperature. Uh, so typically, uh, bushfire is, is, a, is a big topic uh, in Australia at the moment but also uh, cyclones, uh, both on the east coast and the west coast. Um, so drought for agriculture is also a key, a key topic. So Austria is definitely um, on our radar, but more for the next, uh, probably in, in 12 months. We need to make sure that uh, um, New York is um, up to speed, same for Singapore, and then we can start working on other um, geographies. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And I can hear there's a some some big markets for you to expand into there um and and with those i can hear there's some some big challenges i can imagine in the australian markets latin markets and these emerging emerging markets as well this need to provide the types of weather-based natural catastrophe coverage so i wish you the best of luck in getting into those um as we sort of finish up i'd, I'd just like to ask a couple of questions about sort of you know your own experience about being an entrepreneur um and so, you know, what was what was the most unexpected element for you of being and becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I think the, the, the job uh, really forces you to be uh, present and uh, intentional uh, with how you spend your time. So it can be um, easy to have your um, mental uh, 
bandwidth uh, with, uh, let's say, your, um, uh, the pro- with the prime of the day, uh, and also paying wages uh, every month. But it's really important to uh, be just as uh, intentional um, in uh, building your team and, and functions for the long term. So uh, I think it's uh, the big challenge is to be able to find a, a compromise between the very, I mean, the short-term challenges and the long-term challenges. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to spend more and more time on uh, uh, what uh, Descartes uh, will become in two or three years, other than what we need to achieve by the end of the month. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's not that easy, actually. So what tools are you using to be more intentional? Well, I think I, I, uh, I have to delegate uh, more and more. And uh, right now we have a, a larger team, so it's easier. Uh, and um, I need to um, accept basically to, um, uh, to, to have probably uh, low revenues uh, in the very short term if I can generate much larger revenues in one or two years' time, which means that we are spending more time on R&D. We are spending more time on things that will only deliver value uh, in the middle term. And uh, it means that also yeah, you need to, to uh, convince your let's say, your, um, your shareholders to uh, uh, share the same vision and to work on this vision and not only on, the, I would say, the uh, uh, monthly uh, management reports, which is the, the case for some startups. Um, and also for large groups, um, I, I spent uh, eight years within a very large insurer and it's very difficult to, uh, uh, to, to, to think uh, long-term because you have to, to meet your daily targets, your monthly targets, and um, it's difficult to to find time to to build something uh, for for twenty twenty two or twenty twenty five. That's uh, that's a challenge. So I hear in that answer that being an entrepreneur, the the unexpected component is that you're being pulled in both directions, delivering short term objectives versus also building for the long term and and learning how to be um, very intentional about delegating your time between those two types of objectives and. And then giving giving responsibility away to others as well, right? And letting them help you in. Yes, we we have new joiners every uh, every two to three weeks right now, so we need to um, to trust them. Uh, so they they do not have a, uh, sometimes previous expertise in the insurance space, but we need to train them uh, as fast as we can to be able to um, uh, be able to delegate more and to create a, a second third fourth generation of uh, employees that uh, will share the same mindset and uh, will be able to uh, free up time for uh, the first generation to really focus on uh, on how to create a, a multinational uh, based out of a, of a startup, which is uh, definitely achievable, but, but challenging. Well, I wish you the very best in that success and, and achieving that goal. So... Um, Thank you. I really appreciated your time today. Thank you very much. Um, as we finish up, I, I always like to ask this question. Um, what are the top three books that have influenced your thinking? And that could be something right now or ones you've, you loved as a kid and can be fiction, it can be business, anything you like. Well, I think the, the, the first one is, is, um, is a book from uh, René Descartes. Uh, so the, the French uh, mathematician and philosopher is called The Discourse uh, of, on the Method. Uh, so basically, um, it's a, a book uh, where um, René Descartes uses the famous expression uh, cogito ago sum, uh, which means basically, uh, I think, therefore I exist. 
and uh, I think in this book, uh, uh, Descartes tackles the, the problem of skepticism. And he, he starts his uh, line of reasoning by uh, doubting everything. Uh, so to assess the, the world from a, a fresh uh, perspective, uh, clear of any, uh, I would say, uh, a cliche or preconceived um, notions. So I think it's um, as a startup, you need to uh, break some rules and to also, uh, uh, you need, of course, to learn from uh, large companies and uh, the way they, they work. But at the same time, you need to um, uh, differentiate yourselves and to be able to uh, challenge what uh, uh, challenges that you score. And I think the, the method of, the scientific method of Descartes is very powerful of course, uh, for scientists, but also for entrepreneurs. Because they will need at some point in time to, to break some existing rules to get rid of some conventions that um, had a, a meaning uh, 50 years ago or a century ago, but the, the meaning uh, has been completely lost. So I think that's the, the first book. The second book would be uh, The um, Innovator's Dilemma from uh, Christensen. And I think it, it gives you uh, the reason why uh, some large companies are, are failing and uh, it gives also some uh, hope as a startup to do much better with less resources than very large groups so i think it's uh, could you could you repeat the name of that book for me please it's the innovators dilemma innovators dilemma yeah exactly from uh, clayton uh, christensen uh, and the last one is uh, a book uh, wrote by uh, stephen Catlin, so one of the uh, the key characters in the insurance industry and I think um, there is a, a nice quote uh, from him in his book saying that uh, insurers do not respond to the claimant with a smile, a handshake and a check, basically when there is a claim. And that um, insurers are frequently adversarial. And I think it's, um, it, it's a good summary of um, uh, the relationship between insurers and insureds. And I think that uh, right now it's uh, not acceptable anymore. So we need to, to find a more collaborative way to work with our clients. Um, I, I don't want to talk about customer centricity because it's something that has been um, used a lot by uh, large insurers, but I think it's not, uh, it's, it's not materializing very well in the way they uh, handle claims. So we want, uh, within Descartes and Writing, to, be, to, to, to completely change the mindset. Uh, we really want to to be able to have this smile and, uh, and this uh, handshake when there is a claim. And we want to be helpful and responsive because we know that we will build a, a, a very strong reputation out of it and that basically the level of loyalty uh, will increase a lot and that we will be able to be a, a very um, differentiated animal in, uh, in the corporate sector if we manage to do that. So it's, it's really something that uh, is, um, is key uh, in, uh, in the way we... Uh, we want to behave with our, with our partners. Fantastic. And what was the name of the book? It's Risk and Reward. Risk and Reward. Okay, great. I'll put a link in the show notes to all of those books. Uh, that's fantastic. And I, it's great to know, um, you know, the, the Descartes reference there as well, because I think many of you are wondering that was why, uh, why the company was called that. And I think it was a lovely, a lovely connection. Um, thank you very much, Tangi. You've been um, an absolute pleasure talking to. It's been great hearing about you know, your view of the market, the progress of Descartes underwriting and uh, what you have on the horizon as well. So um, thank you again, and I wish you the very best. Thank you very much, William. Talk to you soon. 
So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.